Howdy folks, this is Miss Sinclair for Miss Sinclair's History. We are learning about AP US history today. We are on topic 3.6, which is the influence of revolutionary ideas. Last time we talked about the American Revolution itself. Let's talk about its impact. If you are listening to this on podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review. It really helps other teachers and students and anyone who wants to learn about U.S. history find this. If you are watching this video on YouTube, please enjoy the slides. You can take notes and again, consider leaving a rating. I really appreciate it. Okay, enough about me. Let's jump into it. So what enabled American success in the Revolutionary War? Do you remember? Now, it's really important to actually pause the video or audio and think about these questions when they come up. Use them as self-assessment tools. If you can't remember something that we just talked about or something that we talked about last week, especially for something as significant as the reason why the United States won the revolution. Oh gosh, buddy, like you might need to do a little bit more studying. If you can't remember it three days later, how do you expect to remember it three weeks later for the test or six months later on the AP test? So I will help you out here. <laughs> a number of things contributed to American success. Um, the fact that we knew the land, the fact that we are frankly more motivated, right? War fatigue in Britain was a real thing. Um, but the biggest thing is going to be the fact that European conflicts took a much higher priority for Britain than the American Revolution. We would not have won if it was not for the intervention of France and Spain. And so their motivations, France and Spain, got involved, not because they were like, ah, yes, we believe in your enlightenment ideals of equality before the law. No, they were like, what can we do to make King George III's life more difficult? I know, we'll just support this little revolution. So today we'll be learning about the influence of revolutionary ideals. So that means we sort of have two objectives here. I want you to be able to explain the various ways the American Revolution affected society. And I'd like you to describe the global impact of the American Revolution. So we have a revolution, great. Now what, <laughs> right? That's the big question after a revolution. It's really easy to overthrow a government. It's a lot harder to establish a new one. So what changes? Well, not a lot, right? The social hierarchy is basically the same. The rich remain rich, the poor remain poor. If you were a slave, you were still a slave. If you were a woman, you still could not own property and you still could not vote. However, some historians say that the biggest change might not have happened immediately, but what changed and what makes the United States unique is sort of the establishment of a system that allows for meritocracy, right? Sure, 
the American Revolution didn't free the slaves. It didn't give equal rights for women. It didn't even give equal rights to all white men. However, it creates a system that will allow for all of those rights to be established. It will allow for change over time, right? Compare it to the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is still extremely stratified in terms of wealth. Um, you still have aristocracy there. Whereas in the United States, although it might be rare, we do have rags to riches stories. So what does this gradual change start to look like? Well, one of the things that we do is we do eliminate the practice of primogenitor. Primogenitor, if you remember, is this practice where the eldest son inherits everything. So the eldest male heir gets it all. Instead, we eliminate that as sort of the default. We start to reduce property qualifications for voting, especially in the West. Now, when I say the West, I don't want you to think Grand Canyon and Utah and California. I want you to think like West Virginia. So many of these new regions, as they start to get incorporated into the new United States, say you only have to be a white man to vote. You don't have to own property. We start to see a legal separation of church and state. We'll come back to that phrase when we get to the Constitution. But by 1800, um, it is the common practice that religion can't be financed by the government, right? Um, New England in general kept state-run congregationalism until 1800. The Anglican church is dissolved in the South um, and instead the Episcopal church um, of America is established. It's essentially the same thing. Um, but the key difference is they, while they might answer to the Archbishop of Canterbury, they don't answer to the King. And we start to see the North slowly starting to abolish slavery. Now, it's not because suddenly Northerners are like, aha, enslaving fellow human beings is morally wrong. Instead, we start to see it's not economically viable in New England, especially. And so it's not helpful. So there's not much to lose in abolishing it, right? The Quakers have always been anti-slavery. Benjamin Franklin, whenever he visited plantations, right? George Washington was a plantation owner, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, um, many of the founding fathers, in fact. When Ben Franklin would go and visit them on plantations, he would bring money and he would pay the slaves who served him. So slavery is sort of on the road to extinction. This is one way, one interpretation of the founding fathers and sort of reconciling their uh, blind spot when it comes to slavery, right? The founding fathers can't decide on what to do about slavery. They can't agree. So they sort of say like, let's, <laughs> that's a problem for another day. That's future meets problem. Right. Step one is to create a government that will keep us united. And it's really not a guarantee that the separate colonies won't break apart into 13 separate countries. 
So priority number one is keep us together, united as a country. Priority number two, um, keep us from going bankrupt as a country. So slavery as an issue is not even in the top 10. Many people think, well, it's just gonna die out eventually. So like, why make it an issue? You see Pennsylvania is the first state to abolish slavery and to form an anti-slavery organization. We will see in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, slavery will not be allowed. You see, um, do I have them up here? Uh, nope, not yet. You see slaves and ex-slaves being significant um, participants in um, the early colonial society, right? Phyllis Wheatley is a poet. Um, Richard Allen creates the first African, um, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, so we haven't solved this issue by any means. We kind of kicked the can down the road. All right, what about for women? Well, you have this whole idea of Republican motherhood. Republican motherhood is uh, the idea that women are entrusted with the moral education of citizens, right? Um, in many ways, women are empowered during the Revolutionary War because as their husbands, brothers, fathers are off fighting, they take up those roles, right? Someone has to plow the fields. Someone has to run the shop. Well, the women do. And part of the idea of Republican motherhood is that women need to be well-educated because they need to raise their sons to be good citizens, right? Martha Washington runs the plantation while George is off fighting the British. Abigail Adams organizes the women of Massachusetts. Women are viewed as morally superior to men. And now there's all these double standards that come along with that. Men are weak morally. That's why they sleep with prostitutes. And you really can't expect men to, you know, not cheat on their wives because they're just too weak morally. But, oh, a woman can't cheat on her husband because she should be able to resist that urge, right? Like there's all kinds of double standards here. But the idea is that women are morally superior to men. And after the war, they are less submissive than they were before, right? The idea becomes that a good American mother raises her sons, especially, but her children to be good citizens. And a good citizen is dedicated towards the public good. So it's not about raising your child to put themselves first. You know, um, you gotta just just do what it takes to make the money. You know, if you step on a few toes on the way, if you hurt people's feelings, tough luck, like you get the money, screw everyone else. No, no, no. You put the needs of your community before your own. So it is the job of the mothers to raise good citizens, to build up civic virtue. We see that some legal rights change, right? Um, it gets easier for women to be able to get a divorce. And there's a new sense of nationalism, right? Um, this is the only revolution where nationalism comes after independence or 
normally we see there's a sense of nationalism. We are united because we are French. We are united because we are um, Haitian. Um, we are united because we are Russian. And because of that, we should overthrow the government. This time it was like, we should be independent. And oh, oh yeah, I guess we're all in this together. So I guess we're Americans now. Right. There's no nationalistic sentiment during the Revolutionary War. No one's saying I'm proud to be an American during the Revolutionary War. They might be saying I'm proud to be a Virginian. I am a proud son of Massachusetts, but they're not going to view themselves as an American. So nationalism is a result of the revolution, not a cause. And we start to see that after the revolution, distinct efforts have to be made to sort of build nationalism. The, the main term that I want you to associate with uh, time period four is gonna be sectionalism. Sectionalism, that's like the phrase for uh, unit four. And the reason why we have sectionalism is because we don't have nationalism. If you want to look at sort of a great example of Republican motherhood, of sort of feminism, so to speak, in the revolutionary era, you don't get much better than Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams and John Adams were deeply in love, but they were also deep, good friends, right? She, he definitely viewed her as an intellectual equal. She advised him on policies, on politics, um, they would write constantly. They always started their letters to each other, dear friend. There's a great video clip from the HBO series, John Adams, where Abigail is sort of advocating for women. And, you know, she writes to him, like, remember the ladies, like, are not the women also sacrificing, also having to fight, even if we're not holding guns, right? We're the ones trying to figure out how do we feed our children? How do we clothe our husbands who are off fighting? So we know the typical narrative of the American Revolution, right? The scrappy Americans pushed off the cruel British empire because we were being oppressed. And because of that, we got freedom and liberty and all that jazz, right? We're, we're, we're very familiar with the pro-America sort of um, version of the story. But history is interpretation. What if a historian wanted to tell the story of the American Revolution from a different perspective, right? What if a historian wanted to write about the revolution from the perspective of slaves or women or Native Americans or even the loyalists? I would like you to think about if historians are writing the story of the revolution from a different interpretation, like that of slaves or Native Americans, what would they emphasize? What event might be reinterpreted? What questions might they have? Let me give you a couple examples, right? If you're writing from the perspective of women, you would probably talk a lot more about the home front, less about the battles themselves, more about 
what's happening in towns and on farms, how women are trying to balance the obligations of raising food and raising children and contributing to the war effort. You would hear more stories involving the challenges of medicine and babies and less about assassinations of General Burgoyne. Or if you were talking about the experience of the loyalists, right? The Sons of Liberty are probably not going to be viewed as folk heroes. Rather, they'd probably be viewed more like terrorists. Or think about the experience of slaves. You're probably not gonna get as many stories of the North. You're gonna talk more about the South. You're probably gonna talk more about the hope that slaves were given by the British army that if they fought for the British, they would be freed, right? History is interpretation. And it's important that multiple interpretations of history exist because it, they ask different questions. Um, they focus on different things, right? What if you watched Harry Potter and instead of focusing on Harry Potter, you focused instead on the experience of Neville, right? or of Draco Malfoy, or of even Hermione. Suddenly the movie, or Dumbledore, or McGonagall, right? Any character other than Harry, if you focus on their experience instead of the main characters, your understanding of the story is gonna be a little bit different. Perhaps you've read the classic children's book that reinterprets the tale of the three little pigs from the perspective of the wolf. And the wolf just needs a cup of sugar, but he has a terrible cold. So every time he goes and talks to the pigs, he sneezes and accidentally blows their house down. Same thing. Multiple interpretations of history are not a threat. Instead, they give us a more full picture of the events that we then as individuals can interpret for ourselves. Okay, let's change and talk about the global impact of the American Revolution. We're not gonna spend a ton of time talking about this because frankly, the AP test is not gonna spend a ton of time talking about this. So let's move through it quickly. All right, we're gonna start with the French Revolution. The French Revolution is gonna be the most directly influenced by the American Revolution. French society at this time is a bit of a mess. Um, you have Louis XVI as an absolutist monarch, that means if the king says on Wednesdays we wear pink, we are all wearing pink. The king says jump, you ask how high, right? There was literally a guy whose job it was to wipe the king's butt after he pooped. And that was a very desirable job because it meant you got to be very close to the king and thus influence. Right? Like that's the situation we're talking about when it comes to how powerful the king is. French society is divided into three categories. They call this the three estates. You have the first estate, which is the clergy, the second estate, which is the nobility, and the third estate is literally everyone else. In France, things have gotten pretty bad. Cities are vile, right? You um, see Paris is full of literally starving people. The streets are full of beggars and prostitutes. They are unable to afford decent housing, unable to have steady jobs, unable to feed or protect 
their children. And so we see the poor frequently erupting with violent rage. Increases of taxes or the increases in the price of bread often led to violent riots. France, frankly, like thanks for helping us out in the American Revolution, but that was a bad financial decision. France is incredibly in debt from their participation in wars like the War of Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War. So the fact that they decide to finance the American Revolution is not great. More than 50% of France's budget went towards paying the interest on its debts. So in 1789, for the first time in over 150 years, the king calls for a meeting of the Estates General. It's kind of like their legislative body, kind of like parliament, but not really, because they've been able to go for, gosh, over 150 years without meeting. Remember, after the Act of Supremacy in the English Civil War, the King of England doesn't make the laws. Parliament makes the law. No such law exists in France. The Estates General don't make laws. The King does. So one of the key differences in the French Revolution versus the American Revolution is who's leading it, who's participating in it. Remember, I argued to you that the American Revolution actually wasn't very revolutionary. Who was pushing for the American Revolution? The upper class, right? Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams, men who are educated and wealthy. In the French Revolution, we are gonna see that the crowd, the lower classes are the ones that rise up. And I've mentioned this before, what causes people to overthrow their government generally? The American Revolution being the exception. People are, if you look throughout human history, you see that humans are pretty willing to put up with a lot. Um, but when you can't feed your kids, when you can't pay your rent, and when you don't feel like you have any hope for the future, that things will not be better for your children, when you despair, and you lose hope, you feel like you have nothing to lose. And when you feel like you have nothing to lose, you violently overthrow the government. So Louis XVI calls the Estates General together. They meet and the bourgeoisie, the middle class of the third estate start to protest. They um, want France to become a constitutional monarchy with an elected legislature. Now, 97% of France is part of the third estate. The third estate starts to call itself the National Assembly and saying that like, oh, we're gonna form a legislature. So the king panics and figures, ah, I know what I can do. I can make them stop meeting. And he locks them out of the meeting room. He figures if they're not in the meeting room, they can't have a meeting, so I win. So instead, they go to the tennis court and write a constitution. This is known as the tennis court oath. It's a big deal. Then in, on July 14th, 1789, nearly a third of Paris is out of work and starving. When they hear that the king and that like things are happening down in Versailles, the 
crowd in Paris overthrow the Bastille. The Bastille was a prison used primarily to hold political prisoners. Political prisoners. So they break into the Bastille. They set the prisoners free. They hack the commander to death and parade around town with his and others' heads on sticks. Right already, the French Revolution is not only more violent, but it is more chaotic. Meanwhile, simultaneously, right, these all these things are happening at the same time. You have the tennis court oath happening at the same time. You have the storming of the Bastille. And at the same time, the peasants in the countryside who are also starving and unable to feed their children are literally burning chateaus and castles to the ground. They are breaking into the rich people's houses. They are burning the documents that show that they are in debt and destroying it. They are refusing to pay taxes. They are seizing the land. The new National Assembly issues the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. It is a statement of the fundamental political rights adopted by the French National Assembly at the beginning of the French Revolution. Liberty, the right to property, security, and resistance to oppression. It is very similar language to the Declaration of Independence, and it is not a constitution. Meanwhile, right, there's lots of meanwhiles here. Meanwhile, the economic situation in Paris is getting worse. Women are hit hard, especially. They can't feed their families, and they are pissed. They meet in the market to try and buy food, and there's no food, and they are angry, and they feel powerless, and they hear their starving children crying, and they decide to take charge. They start chanting, we want bread, and they march the 12 miles to Versailles. They enter Versailles, the palace where the king and queen live. They search for the queen who is viewed, Marie Antoinette, who's viewed as too extravagant. She said, which is not actually true, but they, the quote attributed to her is, let them eat cake. She never actually said that. Like, if they want bread, well, they should just eat cake instead if there's no bread, right? Like, that's, that's the rumor. Not true. But they essentially take the royal family hostage and force them to Paris, right? There's n- there are criticisms to be made for the royal family of France at this time. But imagine how terrifying it would be to have a mob break into your house, hold your family and children at sword point and force you to march being held captive, right? They write a constitution, demands for civic equality, blah, 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 limited power. They decide to um, behead the king and then behead the queen. It's just starts to be a mess, right? You have what becomes known as the terror in 1793 because Marie Antoinette, Austrian princess. So very quickly, this new national assembly, France is at war with Austria and Prussia. I know I'm going into a lot of depth on this. Just listen, don't, you don't need to worry about it. So you have the reign of terror. Everyone starts to get worried about counter-revolutionary plots, right? They have a brand new revolution. It's really chaotic. There's no clear leadership. Um, The poor want food. They want a complete restructuring of the social hierarchy. There's fears that there are like conspiracy movements trying to put the king back in power, blah, blah, blah. Enter Maximilian Robespierre and the Jacobins. 
The Jacobins are a radical group of Republicans during the French Revolution. They will use the guillotine to um, establish sort of their reign, becomes known as the reign of terror. 40,000 will be executed by guillotine. 300,000 people will be um, imprisoned based off suspicion of conspiring against the nation. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette will be two of the people executed. And once you are willing to kill the king, it's pretty clear you're willing to kill anyone. So Robespierre purges all of his political enemies. He forms the Committee of Public Safety, which is a special court to seek out and punish enemies of the revolution, AKA anyone who might disagree with him. So you sort of develop this cult of the supreme being. And it's this classic situation where Robespierre grows so paranoid. First, he's executing his enemies. Then he's executing his critics. And then he's starting to look to his allies and view them as threats as well. So he starts to execute his allies. And then they do turn on him and he is executed as well. It's a mess. Eventually, you're going to see a new despot rise to power. One, um, Napoleon. But we're not going to talk about him. All right, let's talk about the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution is another example of an actual revolutionary revolution, right? Can you hear how different the French Revolution was compared to the American Revolution? The Haitian Revolution, Haiti, originally known as Saint-Dominique, uh, Saint-Dominique, yeah, is a French Caribbean island colony for full of sugar plantations. It's one of the richest colonies in the Americas, and it is entirely based on an incredibly brutal slave system. So you have a mixed society. Most of the population are slaves working on the sugar plantations, but you also have free blacks and then French colonists. So you have a group of people known as the, and forgive my French, literally, I cannot speak French, jeunes de couleur, which are the free men and women of color in Haiti. And they want greater political rights. During the French Revolution, we see that the ideas of revolution sort of um, make their way to Haiti. And the jeunes de color um, start to be like, hey, we want some rights too. They want the ideals of the French Revolution to be applied to the French colonies. Well, the slave owners um, are not interested in that at all. So the leader of the Jeanne de Colors are is captured by the slave owners, tortured and killed. Then in 1791, under the leadership of Francois Dominique Toussaint Louverture, again, forgive my pronunciation, the Haitian slaves rise up. Louverture is the leader of the Haitian Revolution and a former slave. This is our really only successful slave rebellion. And in part, it's because they're on an island. They will free the slaves. The rebelling slaves will destroy the plantations and the crops. They will murder the masters and the overseers. They defeat the British forces who try to intervene. They invade the... Um, Spanish side of the island, Santo Domingo, freeing the slaves there. 
1802, Napoleon will try to recapture the island by sending in the army, but they all get yellow fever and die. And Napoleon is too busy fighting the rest of Europe to have to deal with this island. And so in 1804, the Republic of Haiti declares its independence. It is the first incident in the world where black slaves successfully rebelled against their enslavers. All right, in Latin America, you're gonna see a lot of revolutions as well. Um, a lot of things will impact the um, Latin American independence movement, the European enlightenment, the American revolution, the French revolution, the Haitian revolution. Here's the thing that it's going to make the Latin American revolution so distinctly different than our other revolutions. Like the American revolution that forms the United States of America, you will see for the most part, it will be the wealthy and those in power who want to rebel. And they want to rebel to preserve their power. Um, an analogy I once heard a professor make was that the Latin American revolutions are like if the Confederacy won the war, right? Um, when Napoleon invades Spain and Portugal, there's a question of, well, are we Mexico and Brazil now French? No, the Portuguese royal family flees to Brazil. So in response to Napoleon conquering the mother countries, all of Spanish South America will declare its independence and establish republics. But the question is who should be in charge, right? So the initial reason why Spanish South America becomes independent is not because of any problems they have with the Spanish system. It's problems, it's because of problems they have with the French, right? They declare independence to be like, screw you, Napoleon, we're in charge. So it's ultimately a very conservative revolution. The elites stay in power. Slavery remains. Exploitation of indigenous peoples and natural resources remain. We are not going to see drastic changes in the 19th century as a result of these um, revolutions. And instead, the elites who remain will auction off the natural resources of South America and Central America to the highest bidder in Europe. Okay, so there's a great crash course on this, the American Revolution, who, who won the American Revolution. It's a really interesting sort of deep dive into it. But for our summary, I would like you to explain the various ways the American Revolution affected society. Please describe the global impact of the American Revolution. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please let me know. These are the exact same lectures that my students get in class. It is designed to be an asset to teachers, students who might be absent because of illness or sports, or anyone who just wants to know what are kids learning in history class these days. Have a great day. Thank you for listening.